0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature.
2: WNYC Studios. Julia.
3: Jad. Hey. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good.
1: Hey, it's How Jad. This is you? Radio Lab. Before we get to the podcast part of the podcast, um, I want to introduce you or reintroduce you to someone from the Radio Lab extended family who has a great new project that is just out. You may remember her from the RBG episode that we ran.
4: When you'd ask her a question, there would be silence. (laughs) Enough silence.
5: Mrs. Ginsburg.
4: To make a person nervous and start trying to help her answer the question.
1: (laughs) Or you might remember her from a mind-bending trip she took to American
3: Samoa. This is the only place in the world... That is U.S. soil and people who are born here are not citizens.
1: We're just generally from More Perfect. More Perfect. Our series about the Supreme Court. Julia Longoria, it's so great to talk to you again.
3: It is so nice to hear your voice.
1: (laughs) Julia has a new project that is a collaboration between WNYC Studios and The Atlantic Magazine, and it is called The Experiment.
3: It aims to be a show about the stories we tell ourselves. As a country, our ideals and moments when those ideals can feel far away. And this push and pull of like believing in the ideal, but pointing out when we mess up.
1: Okay, so you guys have been out for a few months already, it's been getting amazing response. Um, w- w- tell me about some of the stuff you've worked on or that you're working on that that's exciting.
3: Yeah, w- one of the stories I'm most excited about is um, actually about a Supreme Court case. Um, it's about, uh, it's the first case where uh, the Supreme Court looked at vaccination, um, hmm. like basically forcing people to, to uh, vaccinate. And its legality. So there was this pastor, a guy named Henning Jacobson, who he was living in the U.S. in 1904, and there was a smallpox epidemic then. And Massachusetts passes this law where uh, people are required to take the smallpox vaccine. So this pastor refused. He was like, "Nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to pay your fine." It was it was a it was a fine that they had to pay. And you know, the Supreme Court basically said like, tough luck, like you're gonna have to pay the fine. And we were just curious about this case in this moment. Uh, So one of our producers, Gabrielle. Hi, is this the Swedish Lutheran church in Cambridge? Just cold called the church? (laughs) We haven't been that in a very long time, but yes. Where the pastor used to work Uh, and the pastor who's there now, Pastor Luchohan, picked up the phone.
2: I'm sure this is about vaccination? Yes
3: and was just the best character. He had thought so deeply about this man and was not an (laughs) anti-vaxxer. And he describes um, this portrait of Pastor Jacobson that's sitting in his office.
5: He looks like a, uh, he got like wild hair and a wild beard kind of.
3: I think he was like kind of like
1: a fire and brimstone sort of preacher. He's he's dignified,
4: I would say, dignified, sort of asking,
3: what are you going to do with me? And I'm like, I don't know, Henning. I don't know, man. The pastor's just kind of looking at him and being like, what do we do with you? Like, as our, like, kind of founding father of this church that he's now a part of and cares deeply about, like, how does he think about the legacy of this man?
1: Oh my God, that's like a microcosm of a question we're all asking. I mean, how does he?
3: He says that, you know, he has this reflection about how he's kind of glad that Jacobson has this kind of complicated past because, you know, he was human and um, he doesn't, like they don't have to make an idol out of him, you know, like they don't get this pristine uh, founding father and it, and it, kind of allows him to preach humility. Huh.
1: I mean one of the beautiful things about about that I just speaking personally about Radio Lab is watching people leave. Mm-hmm. Well, the leaving part is that sucks. That's the sucky part. But then after the sucky part there's a, like that moment where a new thing comes into the world and here you are with a new thing and you're making it also with Katherine Wells, who is another mo moperf alum and uh Radio Lab alum Tracy Hunt is working with you. So it's cool. I mean, do you do you feel like I what's what's a not self surfing way to ask this question? I'm curious, like where do you feel how do you feel like the the spirit of the show diverges from something like uh, more perfect or radio lab?
3: Yeah, I think um I mean, you know so many of the questions that we thought about together while working with you were really the you know the origin story of of the show in a mm-hmm. lot of ways more perfect is is a show about the supreme court and the experiment is a show that really zooms out from there you don't have to be a plaintiff in the supreme court to yeah. collide with the big ideas um, that this country claims to be about. Uh, so I think we, we're getting bigger and weirder. All right. <laughs> is, is the goal.
1: <laughs> that is Julia Longoria from the new podcast, The Experiment, a collaboration between New York Public Radio and The Atlantic. It is an incredible podcast. I am subscribed. I hope you subscribe. And you can do that. Wherever you get your podcasts, okay. Now for the show.
6: Uh, wait, you're listening. <laughs> okay. All right.
0: Okay. All right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening. to Radio Lab. Radio Lab from
5: WNYC. See?
0: Yeah.
7: Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad, and I'm Latif Nasser. This is Radio Lab, and um, you have something for me today. Yes. Yes. So what I want to do is I want to tell you a mystery. Okay. A mystery that is centered on what makes America, America. Um, wow. Yeah, it, it is the mystery of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, right? That's the thing. Right.
6: But it's been only 100 years or less than 100 years that we've understood free speech the way we do now. Before that, you know, I describe it in my book as a largely unfulfilled promise.
7: So that's Thomas Healy, author, legal scholar. Professor
6: of law at Seton Hall University School of Law.
7: Thank you so much for for coming out to talk to us. <laughs> Excited to be here. Yeah, I talked to him a couple of years ago, actually, uh, but... That conversation that we had has stuck with me because of the way he talked about free speech in this country. And this was really shocking to me that kind of before World War One, the First Amendment was a completely different thing. Is that am I getting that right?
6: Yeah, absolutely. The time that the First Amendment was ratified
7: and So Healy says that in the early days of our country, like say you wanted to open up a newspaper or print some pamphlets the big thing that the First Amendment did for you was say that you didn't need to get a license to do that.
6: If you wanted to publish something, if you wanted to have a press, you didn't get licensed by the government to do that.
7: You don't need to pay for a license to print what you want, which means the press was free in sort of the most boring, literal sense of that word. Hmm. But, But it also meant that the government couldn't censor you by like charging you too much or not selling you a license, which was no small thing. That was
6: a big advance for freedom of speech. Wow, there was no licensing system anymore. Uh, You could say whatever you wanted. But it was unclear at that time whether
7: it offered more.
6: Like whether the First
7: Amendment would protect you After you said whatever you wanted to say.
6: And there was an early test of this Um, in 1798. The Federalist government passed the Alien and Sedition Act.
7: And not long after that, there were actually newspaper editors who would say stuff against the government and just get tossed in jail. Yes. And the courts upheld it. So it kind of failed the test. (laughs) It did fail the test. And, like, you see after that, like, a 100 years of failed tests, right? Every time the Supreme Court sees this, you know, variation on the same question, are you allowed to say offensive or subversive things without being punished afterwards every time? They're like, no, which kind of stands in stark contrast to like what we see around us today, like even just in the last six months. Right. People online lying about the election on Facebook, uh, lying about uh, vaccines, you know, it, it, during a pandemic um, lies that that even that led to the insurrection at the Capitol. Right. Um, so so
1: how, how do we get to where we are now, where it, it just seems like the understanding is you can say whatever you want against the government and it's fine.
7: Well, it turns out, according to Healy. Those views uh, came—basically, we got those views because of one guy. Oliver
6: Wendell Holmes.
0: Magnificent is the word for Oliver Wendell Holmes.
6: Regarded today as the greatest Supreme Court justice in our history.
0: Here is a story as patriotic as the red, white, and blue. He
6: He essentially laid the groundwork for our modern understanding of free speech.
7: And who was he actually? Maybe I should start there. Uh,
6: well, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he was born in 1841, comes from this, you know, old
7: establishment intellectual family in New England. He's kind of like like what you would imagine of a early 20th century Supreme Court justice. He's from a very prominent wealthy Boston family. His name's Oliver Wendell and Holmes. They're like fancy schmancy names. They all could trace their
6: lineage back to the 17th century. He went to Harvard, he went to Harvard Law School. He fought in the Civil War. Um, on the Union side, of course. Um,
7: and by the time he's sitting on the Supreme Court, he's in his 70s and sort of a, an imposing figure.
6: He had this military bearing about him.
7: This very, like, upright
6: posture. Piercing blue eyes. He had this sort of shock of very thick white hair on his head. Mustache, right? He has a great mustache. Yes. Great mustache. That expanded out past the edges of his face.
7: But the most important thing to know about Oliver Wendell Holmes is that he was stridently anti-free speech, as we know it today. And that's kind of what's interesting here, because the mystery of how this country switched how it saw free speech is actually the mystery of how this one man switched how he thinks about free speech. And, and his change of mind became the whole country's change of mind. Huh? And it happened. That switch happened at a very particular moment in his life. So, 1917, World War I is happening.
3: And in Washington, the draft is invoked. President Wilson draws the first number.
7: And...
6: Congress was worried that if people criticized the draft, then they wouldn't be able to
7: raise an army. Congress passed something called the Espionage Act.
6: Made it a crime to
7: say things that might obstruct the war effort. Part of it had to do with spy stuff, but there was another part that made it a crime to say things. Anything
6: that was critical of the uh, form of the United States government— Uh, or of the president, anything that was disloyal or scurious. Which covered
7: pretty much everything.
6: It made it a crime to have a conversation about whether the draft was a good idea, about whether the war was a good idea.
7: And so all of a sudden, people were getting thrown in jail.
6: People who forwarded chain letters that were critical of the war.
7: People who gave speeches against the draft.
6: Or people who said that the war was being fought to line the pockets of J.P. Morgan.
7: And several of these cases actually made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. So in March 1919, three different cases come up in quick succession. Schenck versus United States, Frowork versus United States, Debs versus United States.
6: And the court upheld these convictions.
7: Saying, First Amendment does not apply here. Like, Espionage Act, lock these people up. And Holmes, in all three of these cases, uh, he actually writes the majority opinions. They're pretty dismissive.
6: A free speech. Mm.
7: Like, look, we are in the middle of a war. You cannot. Shut your damn mouth. Joke around. Shut your mouth. Otherwise, you're going to prison. Absolutely. Yeah.
6: Um, He saw a sign that said, damn a man who ain't for his country right or wrong. And he wrote to a friend and said, I agree with that wholeheartedly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's like his bumper sticker. Exactly.
7: Now, Holmes Um, had his reasons for believing that. A lot of them going back to his experiences fighting in the civil war.
6: That experience, uh, that had a huge effect on him.
7: Like, he had these kind of two complicated feelings about it. One was that it was a war to end slavery. It was a righteous war. But at the same time, it was a brutal and barbaric fight.
6: You know, he watched a lot of his young friends die. He almost died himself. He felt like he was an accidental survivor. He was part of the 20th Massachusetts Regiment. And at Gettysburg, the vast majority of the officers in his regiment were killed.
7: It was so devastating. For, for him, it was unforgettable. It sort of forged him and made him who he was and really influenced the way he thought about the world. I mean, the, the 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 war was like 50 years earlier, but he was still thinking about it. He still had his uniform hanging up in his closet and it was still stained with his blood. And so when World War One was happening... When people
6: were out on the battlefield, risking their life. It wasn't too much to ask people at home to support that.
7: His argument was basically that the good of the country mattered more than one person's right to say what they want.
6: He made the analogy to vaccination. Uh, If there's an epidemic...
7: Which, for them, like us, was probably top of mind because the Spanish flu had just happened.
6: And you think that vaccination might stop the epidemic... You force people to get vaccinated against their will. You infringe on their liberty and you force them to get vaccinated. For the greater good. For the greater good. And he thought the same thing applied when it came to speech.
7: Later on in his career, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes took the same argument to a pretty disturbing place, uh, using it to support the practice of forced sterilization in Buck v. Bell. Um, we actually did a whole episode about that case. But going back to speech, these three cases come to the Supreme Court. That's in March 1919, right? Then for some reason, eight months later, in November, there's another case, the Abrams case, very similar circumstances of the case. And he switches sides. Almost all the other justices are still agreeing with the conviction, but he writes a dissent. Right. Mm -hmm. So here, he, so here's a quote. We should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe. And you're like, wait, that's this. You're the same guy that nine months ago was like, lock up everybody. Had he said this sort of thing ever?
6: No, this is no. He hadn't.
7: What happened?
6: Right. Exactly. Why did he change his mind between the Debs case in March uh, and the Abrams case in November.
7: Why would this nearly 80-year-old h- heterosexual, cisgender, white, uh, privileged, <laughs> powerful, wealthy man, like what made him in those eight months change his mind so radically, so quickly? Right, right. So really, the the question is, if you boil it down into three words, the three words are, what up, Holmes? Um, <laughs> You're so um, ridiculous. So so in a way it's like it's it's a mystery of one man but it's 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 a mystery that has this ripple effect into kind of the 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 what is now perceived to be like the quintessential freedom in in the land of the free because that dissent that argument he made after he changed his mind it's the reason why people like Healy say that Holmes
6: laid the groundwork for our modern understanding of free speech
7: so this 180 in Holmes's head over the course of eight months, this is one of the biggest mysteries in the history of the Supreme Court. And Healy gets obsessed with this very specific question. Like, why did Holmes change his mind?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I basically tried to reconstruct every day in his life uh, for about a year and a <laughs> half time period. You're laughing, but I did. <laughs> I had a spreadsheet. Um, with every day.
7: In this spreadsheet, oh, Healy he tracked each of those days right in right that books he was year and a half around those eight months, right? And, and he microscopically pores over Holmes's life, including what Holmes was doing.
6: And the letters he was writing, the books he was reading. He kept a a log of every book that he read. Wow!
7: He even reads the books that Holmes' friends are writing and reading just in case they had a conversation with Holmes. That's great. And, like, what possibly they could have said to Holmes that would have made him change his mind. Wow. So did did, did he find something? Was
1: there, like, a little smoking gun or something buried in all that data?
7: Well... One thing he notices as he's digging into the daily doings of Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, is that
6: he became very close with a group of young progressive intellectuals in Washington, D.C.
7: He had a group of very young friends, these brilliant progressive legal scholars. Among them was future Supreme Court justice. Felix Frankfurter. The editors of The New Republic magazine. Herbert Crowley and Walter Lippmann. This young socialist named Harold Lasky, who at the age of 24 was already teaching at Harvard. And this group, they all
6: gathered in this house in Washington, DC called the House of Truth. The House of Truth, wow. The House of Truth.
7: It was a townhouse, it's like a little like clubhouse for like young progressives.
6: And Holmes was a frequent visitor there. He would stop in on his way home from court and have a drink.
7: And he would like play cards with them.
6: And debate the truth with them.
7: So it's a, like a kind of a funny pairing, like this nearly 80-year-old guy like hanging out with these like young snapper 20-somethings and like, yeah, just like laying down truth bombs. Holmes loved to talk to people. Um, he loved to be challenged. He loved debate. And as he got older he found himself not really having anyone to do that with anymore. Like the sort of intellectual friends that he had who were his contemporaries,
6: those people were all dead by this point. Holmes was Holmes was pretty old.
7: The other members of the Supreme Court, he didn't really care for.
6: He thought that they were all sort of stodgy and uh, he didn't think that they were that smart funny um, duddies. Yeah. And and all of these young men they worshiped Holmes.
7: They would write him fan letters and they would write articles about him in magazines.
6: And so he sort of found a new group of friends.
7: They actually they got so close that when it was Holmes's surprise 75th birthday party his wife, Fanny, snuck a bunch of them in through the cellar for the for the birthday party. And
6: and he felt like some of these young men were the sons that he never had. You know, he would write letters to them and he would call them my dear boy, my dear lads. And they'd write letters back to him saying stuff like... Yours affectionately or yours always. And they would talk about how much they loved him. How did they feel about his um, stance okay. on the uh, libelous speech stuff?
7: Great question. They were not fans.
6: This group essentially engaged in a kind of um, lobbying campaign over the course of a year, year and a half uh, to get Holmes
7: to change his views about free speech. So in May of that year – so remember March is when he has those first opinions – In May, they publish an article in the New Republic. Criticizing his opinion in the Debs case. Which, again, was one of those earlier three cases. So they're knocking him publicly. And
6: Holmes was so worked up by it that he sat down and he wrote a letter. Kind of in a huff. To the editor of the New Republic, defending himself.
7: Essentially saying, you know, again, look, there were lives on the line. There was a war happening, a draft happening. And he's like about to send it to the magazine And then he, like, pulls back and he's like, no, 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 I'm not going to do it.
6: He thinks maybe it's not such a good idea to be commenting on this issue because he knows that the court has another case coming before it in the fall, Mm. the Abrams
7: case. So in October of 1919, this case, the Abrams case, has oral arguments at the Supreme Court. Now— Let me kind of hit pause on Holmes for a second and tell you about the Abrams case. So it was a Friday morning in 1918, and some random men who are on their way to work see a bunch of pamphlets on the sidewalk. They were all scattered around. Some are in English, some are in Yiddish, because it's like it's the Lower East Side. So there would have been at that time there were like a lot of uh, Russian Jewish emigres like in that area. The pamphlets basically say, workers wake up. The president is shameful and cowardly and hypocritical and a plutocrat. And right now he's fighting Germany, whom we hate. But next, after that, he's going to go for newly communist Russia, where you guys are from. And so if you don't stop working, especially those of you who are working in factories who are making bullets and bombs.
6: That these weapons that these people were making were going to be used to kill their loved ones back home.
7: So, quit it.
6: Go on strike.
7: Some detectives get on the case. They find the culprits.
6: Uh, They were Russian immigrants who were anarchists. Three men, one woman. They went on rooftops in lower Manhattan and threw these leaflets from the rooftops.
7: They're convicted under the Espionage Act. And the case ultimately makes its way to the Supreme Court.
6: In the fall of 1919, eight months after the earlier cases had been handed down by the court,
7: It's a similar case to the ones before. And you'd imagine that Holmes just had that same old argument, like, you know, in his back pocket, ready to go. But Healy discovers that something happens right as the court is considering the Abrams case.
6: Something happened uh, to these young friends, in particular to Lasky and Frankfurter.
7: One of Holmes's young friends, Harold Lasky, who's this socialist, a uh, 24-year-old teaching at Harvard, he comes out in favor of a citywide police strike. So the police in, uh, in Boston are going on strike.
6: And to the conservative alumni at Harvard, uh, this was just anathema. And mm-hmm. so there was this effort at Harvard...
7: To get Lasky fired from
6: his job. There was a fundraising uh, effort going on at Harvard, and a lot of the alums were saying they wouldn't give money as long as Lasky and oh, Frankfurter wow. were there.
7: And he is like, if I had, if only I had a sort of a prominent Harvard alum who could stand up for me right now. And so he goes to Holmes and he's like, Holmes, they are about to fire me. He's like, please, can you write an article saying that I should be allowed to say this? And in doing so, you will save my job and my reputation, right? So Holmes is in this really tough spot because. On the one hand, should he write this letter, put his neck out, but he's already, as a judge, said the exact opposite. And as a soldier, he believes that no, like Lasky, shut up. Or should he stay quiet and stay consistent, but then he's going to let his friend get publicly stoned, basically. So he's in this spot, and well, guess what he does?
1: I think I know what he's going to do. He's going to write the letter. He's going to help out Lasky.
7: So he does not write the letter. No? He does not write the letter supporting Lasky, but instead, that same week, he writes this 12-paragraph dissent to the Abrams case. The Abrams case is about a young socialist—do you know what I mean? Like, it's like Lasky is this young radical who's getting punished for something he said, and then at the same time, he has this case in front of him of young radicals who are getting arrested for something they said.
1: Oh, wow. So—
7: he doesn't step in for his friend, but then he does step in for Abrams and company.
6: So seven members of the court um, voted to uphold the convictions, uh, but Holmes dissented.
7: Here's what he wrote.
6: It's short. It's 12 paragraphs. So the first thing he's saying is that we should be skeptical that we know the truth.
7: When men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths.
6: We've been wrong before and we're likely going to be wrong again
7: that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas.
6: In light of that knowledge that we may be wrong, the best course of action, the safest course of action, is to go ahead and listen to the ideas
7: on the other side. The best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. Those are the
6: ideas that we can safely act upon. He says every year, if not every day, we have to wager our salvation upon some prophecy
7: based on imperfect knowledge. That, at any rate, is the theory of our Constitution. It is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. Whoa, that's beautiful. Really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah,
6: absolutely. And and the other justices on the Supreme Court They went to his house, and they tried to talk him out of it. And he said, no, it's my duty.
7: And over the next decade or so,
6: when other free speech
7: cases come up.
6: Holmes continues to write very eloquent, passionate defenses of free speech. And gradually, the other members of the court start to listen.
7: The great legal journalist Anthony Lewis, this is the way he writes it, those dissents, and in particular, the Abrams dissent, quote, did in time overturn the old crabbed view of what the First Amendment protects. It was an extraordinary change, really a legal revolution. And in particular, it's because he wrapped it in this metaphor, the marketplace of ideas that it caught on so quickly and widely. The idea of the marketplace of ideas exploded.
5: The first amendment was about the marketplace of ideas.
7: Not just in the court. The school is
0: supposed to be the ultimate marketplace of ideas.
5: But
7: also beyond it. Uh, The answer is more speech, not less. But as soon as you scratch the surface. Uh,
4: That is not how the marketplace of ideas works.
7: And start to think about how the marketplace actually works. No matter how offensive, repugnant, repellent language or imagery. Like what it lets in the room. You know what we should do with
5: Nazis? We should defeat them in the marketplace of ideas.
7: Or how you even find it. I don't really know where that is. (laughs) The metaphor that has propped up our notion of free speech for the last 100 years just starts to fall apart. And we'll get to that right after this break.
4: Hi, my name is Rachel Melimer, and I'm calling
2: from Alice Springs, Northern Territory, Australia. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the
4: modern world. For more information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
1: Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science.
0: Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café, s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Z-Biotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Z-Biotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow. As it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/radiolab and use the code radiolab at checkout for 15% off.
5: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza.
3: Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas.
5: Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios.
4: Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Chad Lothiff, Radio Lab, and we're back uh, freely talking about Talking Freely and Oliver Wendell Holmes and the marketplace of ideas. And just what a powerful metaphor that has become for us. Right. And in a way, I do think that there's something so beautiful about the fact that this came out in a dissenting opinion that his fellow Supreme Court justices tried to quash that's in a way, it's its own argument. It's like the most persuasive evidence of all for the marketplace of ideas is that if Holmes hadn't himself dissented, exactly, we wouldn't have the free speech we have today. I love that,
1: what you just said. I think that's beautiful. The way in which his argument won is itself proof of the very thing he's saying. Right. But the problem with the marketplace of ideas is that it expresses an ideal that is so much more powerful and beautiful than the reality.
7: Well, so so what's interesting is that Holmes's argument, it's a functional argument. It's in the barter, right? In the marketplace that the truth will rise to the top. This right. will function as a way to sift out the good ideas and the truth. So so it's it's actually a measurable thing. Like we have marketplaces of ideas like like Twitter is a marketplace of ideas, right? Where things get, you know, uh, uh, shouted down and shamed and and shouted down and shamed or spread and and celebrated. And the amazing thing about Twitter is is that you can see that happen. There's there's real data there about retweets and likes and whatever else that, that you could actually use it to test Holmes's idea. Like, does the truth do the good ideas actually rise to the top?
5: That's exactly right. I mean, as we started to see fake news on Twitter and on Facebook, we realized we had the data to study this kind of question. So
7: I talked to this data and marketing researcher. Sinan Aral, professor, MIT. A couple of years ago, he and some of his colleagues at MIT, they took a quantitative look at this exact question. Like, how do truths and falsehoods fare in the marketplace of Twitter?
5: Every verified story that ever spread on Twitter, since its inception in 2006,
7: we captured it. They started by gathering up stories from a couple of fact-checking websites. Snopes, PolitiFact, Truth or Fiction. Factcheck.org.
5: Urban Legends, and so on and so forth. And And they just listed all the stories that those sites had
7: fact-checked, like about
5: anything. Politics, business. All kinds of stuff. Science, entertainment. Natural disasters. Terrorism and war. And of all
7: the stories they looked at. Some were true. And some were false. Then we went to Twitter. And they found for each story, the first tweet. Basically, it's entry into the marketplace.
5: And then we recreated the retweet cascades of these stories from the origin tweet to all of the
7: retweets that ever happened. And so for each story, they ended up with a diagram that showed how it spread through the Twitterverse. And, and when you look at these diagrams...
5: Uh, they look like trees spreading out. And the
7: height and width of each tree would tell you how far and wide the information spread.
5: Some of them are long and stringy with just one person retweeting
7: at a time. Some of them fan out. Tons of people retweeting the original tweet, then tons more people retweeting those retweets. Lots of branches. On top of that, they could see just how fast the tree grew. How many minutes does it take, the
5: truth or falsity, to get to 100 users or 1,000 users or 10,000
7: users or 100,000 users? And Sinan says that when they analyzed and compared the breadth and the depth and the speed of growth of all those different tree diagrams... What he got was the scariest
5: result that I've ever uncovered since uh, I've been a scientist. The trees of lies
7: spread further, wider, and faster
5: than the truth trees. It took the truth approximately six times as long as falsity to reach 1,500 people. So falsehood was just blitzing through the Twitter sphere. You know, we're in a state now where. The truth is just getting trounced by falsehood at every turn.
7: So in this marketplace of ideas, the truth does not rise to the top. Well, that does
1: not surprise me, not even a little bit. Um, But, well, okay, so now I'm sort of coming back to Holmes. Yeah. I think he's wrong on Twitter, right? I definitely think he's wrong on Twitter. I don't think that's the marketplace he was envisioning. Right. Right? Or any of us, frankly. But I think it is possible.
4: In fact, that's exactly what I'm trying to recreate in my little microcosm, in my insight newsletter, in my little counters, in my own personal life.
1: One of the conversations I had recently that has just stuck so deeply in my head was, I spoke to- um,
4: I'm Zeynep
1: a Writer, blogger.
4: I am associate professor at University of North Carolina.
1: I think she calls herself an expert in techno-social-
4: Techno-sociology, because I didn't have a name, so I made one up.
3: Huh.
1: So the, the the intersection between technology and sociology. Yeah, and she got a lot of press recently because mm-hmm. she wrote that first article when President Trump was challenging all of the election results.
4: A lot of people were seeing this as you know Trump being Trump.
1: This is before the Capitol insurrection. Yeah, she basically wrote an article that said uh, America.
4: How are we not taking this seriously? Like, let's stop having you know nitpicky discussions because people want to call this a coup.
1: This is a coup. I'm Turkish. I've seen all kinds of coups. This is a coup.
4: So I sort of wrote that when it was seen almost like a hysterical, alarmist thing to say, look, he's actually trying to steal the election. And maybe we don't have the right word for this. But if we ignore it, we'll soon develop the kind of expertise to have the exact right terminology, which is not good, which is how it is in Turkey, where I'm from. Because we've been through so many.
1: Yeah. So she was writing this article, which got a lot of attention. But then she did a thing, which it's so simple and it's so basic, but it feels beautifully, deeply, originally Holmesian.
4: Right. So um, that article you mentioned I had published in the Atlantic. She
1: publishes in the Atlantic, gets a lot of attention, uh, but also some pushback. So she brings on um, this guy
4: at Cheklovsky, he's a friend.
1: Who just disagreed with her, like, this is not a coup.
4: After the election, we started really, like, having this divergent view of it. He was just sort of saying, like, you're exaggerating. So I'm like, you know what? I have a newsletter called Insight.
1: Huge following.
4: So instead of just sort of disagreeing with me here and there, why don't you write that coherent argument?
1: So she got him to come and write a lengthy takedown of her article. She asked him to write it on her blog, her newsletter to her audience. And then she did a lengthy counter to his counter to her counter.
4: And then people can comment.
1: And she said the whole reason to do it.
4: You try to strengthen your argument by having somebody poke holes in it.
1: She said, I want to make sure my argument is baller. I want to make sure my argument is just tip top, strong and tall. And I need him to come at me with his knives out.
4: And not only is it part of my newsletter, it's a paid part of my newsletter. She
1: literally paid him to disagree with her. The
4: whole idea of free speech is to let ideas battle to get to the better version of them. That's what makes your own thinking sharper.
1: And so she was basically like, if there's a way to make a marketplace of my own to resurrect that dynamic, hell yeah, I'm totally going to do that.
4: And so I launched this, and his was the first one. I've had other ones since.
1: She keeps doing it, bringing people on.
4: Who I think can write a really good, strong version that counters mine, paying people to try to take me down.
1: And she created a little marketplace in her microcosm.
4: It's a small little corner, but I thought if I'm going to have my little corner, I am going to recreate the battle of ideas in a good way.
1: And maybe that's what we need to do. I mean, the marketplace metaphor fails us on social media and in so many places, but maybe the solution is to recreate it in thousands of microcosms where the marketplace can't exist.
7: Well, okay, so let me let me counter that now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Please. Like, you know, as nice as Zaynup's little corner is, it works that way because she controls it, right? Like, she's sort of... Uh, you know, like a benign dictator, but she's still a dictator. She has the power, and that's 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 kind of the fundamental problem with all of these little marketplaces.
2: People don't have the same size microphone in the marketplace of ideas.
7: So, I talked to a friend of mine. Her name's Nabiha Sayed.
2: Hello. Hey. How are you? Good. Did this work?
7: So she's a media lawyer. She was one of the lawyers for BuzzFeed when they were like evaluating that Trump dossier to release it. Oh, the Steele dossier?
2: Yeah. And I'm the president of The Markup, a nonprofit news organization that investigates big tech.
7: And one of the first things she told me was that one of the problems with the marketplace of ideas is that there's...
2: No um, reckoning for the fact that some people have bigger platforms than others, meaning their ideas get heard first. Their ideas also get heard more often. Their ideas are also, you know, surrounded by joiners who are like, that idea is popular. I'm going to join it.
7: And part of it, she was saying, like, look, like as a Muslim woman um, who grew up like right after 9-11.
2: You know, not that all things in the American Muslim experience boil down to a single day in 2001, but to the extent that like the aftermath of 9-11 was formative, it was because I felt like there was all of a sudden a narrative about who I was that was playing out In the media. You know,
7: like, uh, as we all know, it's it's like uh, Muslim terrorists, blah, 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 blah.
2: That bore no relationship to my Orange County Pakistani, like, Kardashian-esque life. Right? (laughs) Like, I just didn't. I was like, who are these people? Who this?
7: And she's like, and I never, my people never got the mic. It's about power. It's about megaphones.
2: But here's the thing to remember, like the marketplace of ideas was one theory, right? Mm -hmm. It's the it's the idea that we glommed onto. And it's the idea that really took off because a variety of social platforms were like, yep, that's the one
7: because it was this sort of idealistic metaphor, but also because it was the most convenient
2: laissez faire
7: set it and forget it sort of model for free speech. But
2: it's not the only one.
7: Historically, there have been a bunch of other models and metaphors that uh, people have used to talk about free speech, um, some of which take the view, not so much that, you know, argument and dissent lead to truth, but instead um, that, like, there's a truth out there in the world and that people have a right to hear it.
2: You should know, is the well in your neighborhood poisoning you? Yes or no?
7: Like, what are the facts that you need to know to live your life and operate in society?
2: That's not a subjective set of opinions like is water poisonous? Yes. Why?
7: And what was interesting to me about this view is is unlike Holmes's argument and for that matter, unlike the, you know, attitude of this is America, I can say whatever I want. This view
2: conceives of like the rights of a listener, not just the rights of a speaker. The
7: way that we do things now,
2: we focus a lot on who gets to talk right? If everyone's talking, somehow blah, blah, magic happens. (laughs) We don't ever talk about the listener. Like, if you're listening to all these people talk, do you have a right to accurate information? And you see some glimmers of that throughout American history.
7: So, for example, in 1949, the government actually set a policy, basically a rule saying If you are a news broadcaster.
2: You know, you have to present both sides of an issue. You have to provide facts on these different sides of issues. And
7: so Nabiha's feeling about all of this is like, if we're going to rethink the marketplace as it exists now, maybe we should incorporate some of this other kind of thinking.
2: We should start from the vantage point of the facts and information you need to participate in democratic deliberation, which could be local, which could be national. But we're going to focus on information health, not just the right of someone to speak.
1: Although it's interesting, like it doesn't negate the metaphor. Uh huh. The problem is the metaphor is so beautiful; it it it, it distracts you from those key questions. It right? totally does. But but those questions can be used to repair the metaphor into something that's actually functional. Can't you just say say the marketplace of ideas, asterisks, okay, and then <laughs> in the asterisks it's like assuming that everyone has equal access to the marketplace, yeah. assuming that each voice is properly weighted, assuming that truth and falsehood are somehow taken into account, uh, that, uh, I mean, what we're talking about is a regulated market yeah. of ideas.
7: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's good. But, but then the question is like, who regulates it? How do we regulate it? Right now, the people who's regulating, like we have the courts with so like Citizens United Facebook, being like, we don't. Unfortunately. Yeah, and, th- and now it's going to be Facebook yeah. and the CEO of Twitter is the one regulating. It doesn't make sense. Like who has that power yeah. and how do we negotiate over that power, which sort of just feels like we're back at square one, right? Like like we're back to the original problem. Like who should regulate speech? And then, and then, so I went back to Healy. Hey, Thomas. Just hey, to put to all this you. in front of him good to see, see if he had any thoughts. Yeah, I actually do. And the first thing he said was... Okay. Yes, the marketplace idea—the way it works now—it's broken, and and it's, it's, in general, it's just a—it's an odd way to think about speech. This kind of
6: weird, you know, commercial understanding of free speech. What about thinking about us all as as scientists?
7: Because you're not you're not buying and selling potatoes. You're looking for truth. Absolutely
6: right. We're not buying and selling potatoes. We're testing the theory of relativity.
7: Yeah. But he pointed out to me something else that Oliver Wendell Holmes said in that Abrams descent.
6: It turns out that Holmes relied on another metaphor in his Abrams descent as well.
7: There's a thing he says right after the marketplace idea. He writes,
6: that at any rate is the theory of our constitution. It is an experiment, as all life is an experiment.
7: And so Healy says what he thinks about is that one word, experiment. And what Holmes could have possibly meant by that and he's come to the view that that Oliver Wendell Holmes was probably acutely aware through all of his experiences that reckoning with free speech when you're trying to build a democracy, it
6: doesn't end. We don't we don't win the game, right? The whole point of free speech is not that, oh, we've got free speech. Now democracy is easy. No
7: democracy is hard. And so to Holmes, the point wasn't to get to some definitive moment of triumph. It was just to keep the experiment itself going for you know as long as possible.
6: And one of the ways to promote the success of an experiment is to build in some flexibility.
7: When the experiment doesn't go the way that you expect, when your initial ideas are challenged, you adapt. You come up with new ideas even new metaphors.
6: And so that's that's another way to think about free speech.
7: That we constantly have to be rethinking what we even mean by free speech. Okay. It's a, okay. It's a constantly tweaking thing. Like, it's a thing that we, it's it's never set, um, but it's something we need to kind of keep tweaking as we're going and, and keep refining.
2: The marketplace of ideas has been such a beautiful idea and it served us for about a century. And maybe it's time to think about what a different theory could look like.
7: So what's the better theory? I mean, now now is the time for you to kind of lay down this bombshell of this new theory. What what is it? Oh
2: cool, yeah. No, um I don't have it yet. But <laughs> 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 I'm working on it.
7: <laughs> Speaking of which, what is a better metaphor? What is a better way to think about free speech in a modern society? email us at radiolab at wnyc.org. Yeah, email us, tweet at us. Maybe don't tweet at us, given what we've learned. Um, But uh, let us know what you think. If you want to keep tabs on the wonderful Nabiha Syed, uh, you can find her at themarkup.org. Obviously, this this whole uh, episode started with Thomas Healy's book, The Great Descent. Um, and he actually has a new book out called Soul City. This episode was produced by Sara Kari, thanks to Jenny Lawton, Soren Shade, and Kelsey Paget, who actually did the initial interview with Thomas Healy uh, with me back in the More Perfect Days. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Latif Nasser. Thanks for
1: listening.
2: Hi, this is Megan Moore calling from Kansas City, Missouri. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gable, Matt Keelty, Annie McEwen, Sarah Kari, Arian Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliyai, Sarah Sandbach, and Karen Leong. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly and Emily Krieger. (laughs)